What are Christians for? And what does a Christian political witness look like in our time? I quote from the publicity of the book by Jake Meadle, and we're going to be talking to Jake shortly. A truly Christian witness, Meadle argues, must attend closely to the natural world and renounce the metallic fantasies that have poisoned common life in America, and I would add in large parts of the world, for far too long. Hi, I'm Brent Siddle, and I'm joined by my co-host, once again, Ian Reid, the Reverend Ian Reid of King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston North, New Zealand. This is the God's Story podcast, and our guest today on the show, our very special guest, is Jake Meader, the editor-in-chief of Mere Orthodoxy, an online magazine covering the Christian faith in the public sphere, and a contributing editor with Plough. He's just published a new book with IVP uh, in America called What Are Christians For? Life Together at the End of the World, which I think is a great title. Jake, hi, how are you? I'm well, thank you for having me on. Now, what sort of metallic fantasies have we given ourselves over to in America and in the Western world then? The main chapter I'm drawing on, and, and actually that was Ethan, our editor, wrote the copy for that but that's drawing on especially the chapter on industrialism that comes earlier in the book and the thing I was trying to critique there is that what has happened to the way we imagine work which reverberates into the way we imagine lots of other things has become very isolated and focused on artificially narrow ideas of what is good work what what work is for. And so the historian I draw on a lot in the chapter is a man named Christopher Dawson, who was working in the early 1900s. And Dawson argues that what happens in the Industrial Revolution is that work is kind of reimagined. And so prior to industrialism, uh, your vocation, your trade, your work fulfills a function within your community your vocation helps your community eat or it helps your community have clothing or it helps keep your community safe. Those are the things that work does. And what happens under industrialism, Dawson says, is that work is snatched out of that context and it's really redefined to basically just mean what you do to make money. And so the argument I want to make throughout the book really is that this creates a really artificial and inhumane and unnatural, ultimately, way of thinking about our obligations to each other, our relationships to each other, even our own identity. All of these things really get extracted out of their proper contexts within families, within places, within churches, within nations within a firm or a union or something like that. And the all of these things instead kind of get focused on how does it amplify my own individual freedom? How does it remove unchosen constraints on my choosing? Um, how does it grow my bank account? Because you want to have a good sized bank account because living this kind of life is expensive. And the more money you have, the more options you have to self-actualize. <laughs> And what all of this does is it breaks a lot of, it breaks apart a lot of things that belong together. And what you end up with, I think, I'm thinking about this more now because I'm hopefully going to be giving a paper on it in a couple months, just the role that anxiety plays in all of this. And I think one element of this is that, well, anxiety comes from 
when you don't really know who you are or what you're supposed to do or what's going to happen? Those are all questions that our communities can and should help us answer. But if we've been living for centuries in ways that destroy those communities, they can't do that for us anymore. And now we have all this anxiety because those questions don't go away. So, Yes, I mean, the book is fascinating. You write about displacement and the effects of industrialization and the 60s sexual revolution, which I want to come and talk talk more about in a a minute. But uh, And you write fascinatingly about the importance of a sense of place. I love the way you describe your sense of place uh, <laughs> where you, from where you were brought up. But why is a sense of place so important to us? For several reasons. One of them is that we are embodied creatures. And so we can't live apart from the health of land and animals that, sustains our exi- that sustain our existence. So if we, I mean, so I'm from Nebraska, which is in the Great Plains region of the United States. And so about 100 years ago, we had a crisis called the Dust Bowl out here, which was the product of basically a bunch of farmers came in, didn't understand how prairie functioned um, as a type of landscape. And they churned up all the prairie, they churned up all the topsoil. And then we got these horrible windstorms that blew away all the soil and we had drought and famine for a long time that especially because it coincided with the Great Depression was absolutely devastating for my part of the country. Um, That's an extreme example, but uh, it fits with what the concern is here is that we can't live apart from a relationship to the earth. And so we have to be attentive to the earth if our own bodies are going to be healthy. That's something Wendell Berry talks a lot about is that there's something very wrong when the people who care about food and the people who care about health never really talk to each other. So that's one piece to it. I think another piece is that uh, landscapes help you kind of recognize who you are and where you belong and find your place in the world. And What's great about it is like any landscape really can can become that for you. I when I fly back into when I travel and I fly back and I'm coming into Omaha, which is usually where I fly out of because it's a bigger airport than we have in Lincoln. Um, I look out of the window and I see miles of farmland and plains, and I just recognize that I'm home. I have other friends, a good friend of mine who's lived in New York her whole life. And it's the urban landscape of New York City and Central Park and these little city parks dotted throughout that she just kind of comes alive in those kind of spaces. Um, I have other friends that live out in more mountainous parts of the U.S. that kind of have the same experience there. Those landscapes become familiar to you. Um, They connect you to things outside of yourself. I mean, for me, my family's been here in Nebraska since 1882. And so the landscape that I know and that my children are growing up knowing is the same kind of land that my great grandfather came to when he came from Sweden. Not exactly the same because we've destroyed the prairies, unfortunately, but it topic like it's the same place and they have similar obligations and similar callings. And I think when you can look to place to supply some of those things to you, again, it goes back to that anxiety thing you don't have to supply all of that for yourself. 
Um, if you're responsible to define your own concept of meaning and existence and all these other things, that's a really, really heavy burden and it crushes a lot of people. So when you have given identifiers, such as a place, um, it removes some of those burdens. I've always, I've never been to Nebraska. I've always, I've always imagined Nebraska as a very, as parts of Nebraska is quite spare and vast. But I suspect I've, I've got that impression from the front cover of the Bruce Springsteen LP, Nebraska, which I have on vinyl. <laughs> I was on a podcast with an Aussie yesterday, and that was also his only contact point with Nebraska. <laughs> yeah, a very distorted view of Nebraska, I suspect. <laughs> it's a great record. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Rito, I'm going to bring you in here. Sense of place. That, what does that mean to you? Well, in New Zealand, we have that kind of... You know, that idea of, you know, what is your mountain, where is your river, you know, where is your, your locker, you know, kind of that is really, it is actually kind of deeper in New Zealand culture that, you know, you, you do have those identifiers that this is the, this is the land, you know, kind of that I, I am from. So it's, it's just not kind of a, a Western idea, you know, kind of so many cultures have that, that's that kind of idea that place is so important. My kind of question kind of comes around how has kind of our, technology kind of taken that away and tried to replace it. I think it's kind of, we've come to a crisis point. I think maybe COVID kind of pushed us into that crisis point in somewhat to highlight that place is so important uh, and that physical space is so important. Maybe there's an opportunity now to kind of explore that and kind of for us to push forward away from that kind of crisis into into something more meaningful. Mm. I don't yes. know if there's a question there. It's just a <laughs> yeah, there is. There's, there, there's one coming up, brother. Yeah, because my next question to Jake is, how do we reconnect ourselves with the earth? And indeed, how, as Christians, are we called to steward the earth rather than destroy it? I'll take those in reverse order, actually, I think. So one of the ways I talk about how we should relate to the earth in the book is I ask the question, what are the things you're willing to be obstructed by? So in the U.S., we generally have answered that question by saying very little. We have been willing to blow the tops off of mountains to access coal and cheap energy. We've been willing to destroy neighborhoods, mostly non-white neighborhoods, to make way for interstate highways. In the U.S., which is the context I know best, there's always been this sense of progression and growth and bringing everything kind of under our feet. And there's not really anything that we're willing to let stop us from that. Um, and the, the outcome of that is now we have very polluted rivers. We have very unhealthy soil. The prairie is gone across my part of the country. Um, and also our farms are not healthy. The average age of farmers in the U.S. is very high it's in the 50s. Um, and a lot of these family farms that have been running for 100 plus years, providing food, milk, vegetables, bread, corn, that people in cities like where I live just take for granted, those people are going to die and they don't have successors. Um, because they, they don't have sustainable enterprises at this point because of the damage we've done to farm life in the U.S. And so I think one of the ways we start to try and think about stewardship instead of consumption is we recognize that there are things that we should allow to obstruct us. 
there are times where we can do something, but it's better that we not because of the harm it will cause. Mm. And that's a very counterintuitive thought for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, So being willing to be obstructed, I think is just kind of a good place to start. And if you're willing to ask that kind of question, that's going to affect lots of things. As far as how do we begin to kind of be reconnected to the earth and resolve some of that alienation. I think there are lots of things we can do. We were just, um, we just drove back the other day from spending our kids spring break up in Minnesota with my wife's family. And a friend of mine who's written for the magazine um, has a farm about an hour south of the Twin Cities, St. Paul and Minneapolis in Minnesota, that they've been on for about 10 years now. And they call it a learning farm because when this guy and his wife got married, he was a computer programmer and they were living in the city and didn't really have any intention of doing anything different. He was going to have a job doing web development and they'd live in the city and that would be their life. And then they got a tomato plant and they grew this tomato plant in their house, kept it in their window. And then they started having tomatoes and it so delighted them that they kind of got the gardening bug. And the next year Rory was out there and like their whole yard in the city was now garden. (laughs) And it kind of has gone from there. And now 15 years later, they have a farm that they have vegetables, they have lambs, they have goats, they have maple trees that they tap so they can make their own maple syrup. They just do all kinds of stuff. And it started with just that one tomato plant, which was pretty delightful. Um, Yeah. Another thing that I remember doing, this is harder for me to do now just because of the ages our kids are. Um, We have four kids between nine and two. uh, So it just creates certain constraints in terms of your time. But I remember when I was out of college, um, something that my roommate and I did together for about a year um, while we were living together is Friday afternoon, there was always a farmer's market within about a mile of our house. And I got off work before he did. And so I would actually walk the mile to the farmer's market and whatever veggies they had in season, I would buy if there was some meat or cheese that a rancher or a dairy farmer brought in, we'd pick that up. And then we'd go back to our place and I'd get home around the same time he got home from work and we would just make a pizza together with whatever ingredients we had that week. And that was something that kind of became a ritual for us for that year. And we loved it. And you learn to kind of expand your palate because what's in season is going to change. You learn to be more conscious of the seasons because you realize, oh, I still have to wait another month before we're going to have tomatoes. Or like, I remember we made this, this dessert pizza once that is still one of my favorite things I've ever made. And we realized afterwards that it was the last weekend we were going to be able to get raspberries and we were kind of bummed. (laughs) But so the walk and then the cooking with the seasonal ingredients that we did together for that year was just another way of like that walk was just this time to slow down, observe the city. I wasn't in a hurry. So I could talk to some of the people that were selling at the farmer's market. I got to hear how they got into it. So it also becomes a way of becoming more connected to your neighbors as well. And so, yeah, I I think it can look like a lot of things and it doesn't have to be terribly complicated. Barry will say, you do what you can with what you have, where you are. Yes. And 
think that's where it starts. Yeah, yeah. One of the other areas that I was fascinated in in the book was when you 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 talk about the sixties and the impact of the sexual revolution of the sixties and how that all evolved out of modernism and industrialization and so forth. I wonder how you think we have unmade our bodies. The argument that I make at the tail end of the industrialism chapter is that one of the things industrialism did is that it disrupted home-based economies that had worked for a very long time. Now they had worked in a fairly limited way. Like I don't remember if it was in the final draft of the book or not, but um, an American historian named Michael Lind has this statistic about how wages basically didn't move in England for about 500 years. So I don't want to like completely throw everything about industrialism out the window, but you had home economies that worked. So with industrialism, you break down these home economies and workers get pulled into factories. And so economies that were kind of ordered to help the family function get smashed. And now you have wage workers in factories all extracted out of their communities and treated as isolated individuals. But what eventually starts to happen is things start to get better for the wage earners, but those are all men. And women did not get to have that same kind of improvement in their material condition, chiefly because they had the capacity to get pregnant. And so that fundamentally changed how they could function as wage workers in the industrial economy. And so what happens in the 60s is we start to have a lot of ferment and discontentment with that in the U.S., particularly with more middle to upper class women living in the suburbs. Um, You think of like Betty Friedan's Feminine Mystique, which pictures this kind of suburban housewife of the 60s laying in bed at night wondering if this is all there is. And so there's a desire to see what other contraceptive options there were. And drug companies in the U.S. were happy to figure that out. They figured it out in some actually pretty horrifying ways that I mentioned in the chapter, such as they couldn't get white women in the U.S. to do testing because of all these nasty side effects they had. So they went to Puerto Rico and basically just experimented on lots of poor women in Puerto Rico to figure out what the effects of these pills they were creating would be. Um, And there were women that died from this testing. Um, There were other women that had lifelong side effects from it. And then they took it to market. And for about the first 25 to 30 years after, there were still some pretty gnarly side effects. And then in the late 80s, they finally rolled out a version that didn't have those kind of side effects. The way that this problem gets solved is that, so we already kind of unmade these fruitful home economies. And now we kind of solve the the problem that created by sterilizing marriage relationships and for like professional purposes, rendering women's bodies equivalent to men's, similarly unable to give birth. And I want to be understanding of why these things developed in the way that they did. I specifically make the point in the book of telling the story of one of the women that wanted to go on this contraceptive pill in Puerto Rico was in an obviously abusive relationship that was incredibly cruel and painful. And you can totally understand why she would want to have that kind of option. And so again, I think we need to be careful to understand these things sympathetically. And yet the the fact remains that the way we solved the problem that destroying the home economy created 
was less life, fewer people, like eventually fewer marriages as well as we're seeing now. And I think we're going to start feeling the consequences of this more and more in the next 20 to 30 years, just as you look at birth rates in a lot of, I mean, it's not even just Western countries anymore either. You can see it um, in parts of South America, you can see it in Eastern Europe. China is going to have huge problems because of the lack of children. Japan is facing these kind of questions. Um, we've created this world where you don't really have space for kids in a normal kind of lifestyle. And so all we know to do is have far fewer of them and then keep them contained in kind of designated institutions while mom and dad work. And it just creates lots of really, really sad outcomes. Um, and a lot of the kind of malaise and hopelessness that I think we kind of associate with like dystopian books like Children of Men, which was also that Clive Owen film made maybe 10, 12 years ago now. But that is increasingly the world we're headed toward. And we've been headed that way since the sexual revolution. And I think at least in the U.S., in within my lifetime, probably, we are not going to have enough workers to pay the taxes to sustain the safety net for our elders. And then there's just a real question of what do you do? And I don't know that anyone has good answers. Um, but that's the problem we're headed for because of the way we have chosen to understand sexuality, understand the family, understand the goodness of children. And there's going to be a lot of problems for us in the near future. Final question. In what ways is our modern world seductive? And Ian, you can join in too, if you like, because I know, I know you've, you, you, yeah. you've both got something to contribute on this. Well, so I, I wish I had been reading him while I was writing the book, because it would have been helpful to me. I've been listening to a lot of podcasts recently, and I'm now reading his forthcoming book by Mark Sayers, who's a pastor in Australia. And so what Sayers talks about in one of his recent episodes is he has this idea he calls the secular Sabbath. And the idea of the secular Sabbath is people kind of look around and they feel like, well, chaos has been subdued, the enemies have been defeated, and now we rest. And the world basically become, your, your world becomes about having good feelings, having good experiences that give you good feelings. And for people of a certain means, financial means, that's not terribly hard to do in many Western countries. I mean, even if you're somebody that doesn't have a ton of money, it's not terribly expensive to get a Netflix subscription and get home from work and make dinner and sit down and binge through a TV show you enjoy. And so it can feel very easy and it can feel very comfortable and very safe, very pleasurable. And yet... What I also see, I talked to a friend just last week who teaches at a university and was telling me about this with her students, is we just have an epidemic of depression and anxiety. And so it seems to me as I look around that a lot of these comforts are fairly superficial and that there's a spiritual longing beneath them that we mostly aren't acknowledging, mostly aren't dealing with, and seem to just kind of be hoping it will go away. Ian, your thoughts about this? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I also recommend uh, Mark Sayers. Um, his podcast very good, Re Rebuilders, and uh, this cultural moment are very good. And both his, his books, uh, particularly Disappearing Church, is very good. But you know, a lot of people, particularly in the church, are asking that question: What's next? Uh, and this is something that you know we've been looking at. Yeah, you know, we both 
Brent and I live in regional New Zealand and you can literally have food delivered to your door from, we live at the other end of the earth, you know, kind of, you can talk to anyone pretty much from across the whole world. You can have food delivered to your door. You can, even where we live, you can have Afghanistani food, you know, kind of delivered to your door. You can watch any movie or any show from ever, wherever you are, but still there's just no meaning and there's no purpose in people's lives. And I think that's, it's a deeply concerning. And we are seeing, seeing, I think some, some very serious problems with, with young university students really struggling with anxiety and depression and where lecturers are saying they've never encountered this before, but just the level of anxiety uh, that they have to deal with is just astronomical and it's really taken off over the last five years. And I think there's some really deep questions that the church has the ability to answer, but it must step outside of the culture to be able to do it. And it must, I think, reclaim its, its Christian orthodoxy and, and its kind of Christian traditions to be able to do that and start to offer something different rather than buying into the technology, rather than buying into the hype. I think we need to kind of step back and say, what, what are we for as human beings? You know, kind of as the, the title of your book, but, you know, what does it look like to, to actually live a purposeful, meaningful life? And what does that look like? And I think it must only be in the gospel. It must only be within the church that we can actually answer those questions. Yeah. Well, Jake, also, final thoughts in the last few minutes? Yeah. I also think I loved all of that, Ian. There has to be a willingness to make choices that make that kind of life possible in the church. In the U.S., particularly, so I'm, I'm, in, a, I'm in the Presbyterian Church in America. It's a denomination that Tim Keller is part of. It's a relatively wealthy denomination. And so there's this temptation to always be chasing after kind of status markers and class markers and so your kids have extremely programmed lives with tons of extracurriculars and you do a bunch of different things besides your job, or maybe you just have a really, really intensive job that requires a lot of hours. All of those things cost you time and they make it harder for you to be available to your brothers and sisters in Christ. And so you can have tons of good intentions about doing all kinds of things. But if you're so busy that you can't act on those, it doesn't really help anybody. Mm-hmm. And so there has to be a willingness to say no to certain things. As you said, step outside the culture, regard a lot of class and status markers with indifference or even disdain in pursuit of something different and better, which not only is going to be delightful for you and your church community, but should also become a blessing to your city or neighborhood in time. Mm. Yes, gentlemen, we could talk about this for hours and hours and hours. It's a fascinating book, Jake. Thank you. There's so much material in it. And it's called, uh, it's Jake Meader, and it's called What Are Christians For? Life Together at the End of the World. And uh, Jake, and that's published by IVP in America. And Jake has been with us today with my co-host, as always, Rido, the Reverend Ian Reid of King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston North, New Zealand. And I have to thank our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and take care of things behind the scenes. Guys, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. This was fun. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. 
Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.